Hello, and welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hello, and welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. I'm Lillian White, and with me today is Nicole Garneau, an interdisciplinary artist and activist and author of the book Performing Revolutionary, um, and currently the organizer of a creative action campaign called 500 Solidarity for a Russian feminist artist, Yula Tsetkova, uh, who we'll talk about more this afternoon. Thank you so much for being here, Nicole. Thank you, Lillian. It's great to be here. Um, so just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at the theater? Yeah, um, well, I was a drama kid all my life. I did a lot of theater when I was a kid. I did a lot of dancing and I always just wanted to sing or dance or act. And then I continued doing that through high school. And then I did it some more in college. I didn't originally go to um, college to be a theater major. I just thought maybe I would like do some acting while I was um, being an African-American studies major, but instead I um, decided to be a theater major. So I studied theater at University of Illinois in Chicago. And um, while I was there, one of my um, really important experiences was that I met a Russian theater company who was performing in Chicago, the Theater of Moscow Southwest, and their artistic director, Valery Belyakovich, which led me to study Russian also while I was at the university, and I worked in this Russian theater for a little while in Moscow. So that was um, as a, being a young actor working in Russia, and then I also, when I returned to Chicago, continued to um, do some theater and dance work and also made my own performances. Wow. And you went to Russia right after college. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and alongside all of that, what were some of the early influences or experiences that shaped you as an activist? Well, when I was, uh, as a young person, I was very troubled by uh, racism and white supremacy, even as a high school student. Um, when I was in high school, um, it was the kind of height of the um, activism around the apartheid movement in South Africa. So um, Nelson Mandela was still in prison, but a lot of people were speaking out about his case. And I think that that actually was quite um, energizing for me as an activist to think about international human rights issues. Mm. And... Um, when I got, and I also lived near Chicago. I was born in Chicago. I spent most of my life in a suburb of Chicago, um, but I returned to Chicago to go to college. And so um, I was very kind of Chicago oriented. I also became involved in like feminist and queer activism while I was at the university. In addition to anti-war activism, I was really opposed to war. Um, that was during the first Gulf War um, that we were worried about. And 
Um, I went to Washington, D.C. I marched in like the Women's March, I think in like 93, the um, March for Reproductive Rights in Washington, D.C., and continued to be involved in um, LGBT queer organizing. And then when I was in Chicago in the 90s, there was an organization called the Women's Action Coalition that was a direct action feminist organization that I was very active in. And I was also very involved for about 20 years in an organization called Insight Arts in Chicago, which was made up of um, artists and activists who were really working at that kind of um, intersection of culture and social change. Um, we had a space in Chicago and we, um, we felt that um, access to culture access to art and culture is a basic human right and that promoting access to art and culture among people who are um, traditionally cut out of those worlds is in its own way activist work. Hmm. Wow. And, and when did the worlds of theater and activist, activism start to merge for you? I think that Insight Arts really helped me to conceptualize myself as an artist who could dedicate their work to social justice and not have to have those two things be separate, although the pressure to keep them separate was definitely there. And also, I think for a lot of artists, it's still there. Um, there's a lot of pressure, especially people who want to be professionally successful or receive institutional support. There's a lot of pressure to... Um, kind of keep your politics out of it um, in a in a certain way, in many ways. Um, and so that so so th that framing really helped me. I also am involved in an organization called Alternate Roots, uh, which is an organization of artists and activists who primarily work in the U.S. South. Um, but I would say that for me, like. You know, honestly, I've been just going through some of my um, archives and I found all these flyers from the 90s of like these actions that we were doing at Insight Arts. We were making performance actions against the death penalty. We were making performance actions in the Chicago History Museum where we were laughing down the patriarchy. I don't know. So we were handing out flyers, letting people know that on the hour they could join us to laugh down the patriarchy, which... Honestly, I think it's a great idea. That's an action that we should bring back. Like, let's just get together and laugh down the patriarchy. Like, it's so ridiculous. What else can you do, really? Yeah. Um, so those were things that were going on. And then, but I think that for me, like, um, all of that led to a moment in um, 2005 where I really kind of made um, a project that I thought was like a performance project that was directly political in a certain kind of way in the way that I defined it. And that was um, when I made this project called Heat 05, where I decided to perform every day of the year of 2005 in order to remember the Chicago heat wave of 1995, when over 700 people died in a week. And the reason that that's political is because at the time in 2005, the mayor of Chicago was still, the mayor in 1995 was still the mayor in 2005. And you can bet that there was not a lot of memorializing of that heat wave that went on. Um, because a lot of the reasons why people died in the heat wave, of course, were reasons of um, 
They were political, social issue reasons. They were reasons that had to do with poverty and racism and the segregation of Chicago. Because, of course, we have the technology for people to survive heat waves. Um, the reason that people die in heat waves is because they're too poor to turn on the air conditioning or they're too socially isolated and they die alone in their homes. And so... Um, so yeah, performing every day for a year, really talking about the heat wave a lot for the year, really having that kind of social thing of um, making work in public and then needing to explain what it was that I was doing and needing to figure out how to say, like, I'm doing this so that I can spend a year remembering um, and memorializing the people who died in a heat wave 10 years ago. And just, you know, starting that conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear more about that because in reading about Heat 05, one of the things that um, jumped out to me is that it did mark a, a pretty um, dedicate, dedicated attention to working in public spaces and working in the streets, um, which it sounds like you'd been doing some before, but that became a big part of Heat 05, as well as performing for people, performing for people who were in the spaces that you went to as opposed to hustling up an audience uh, for every event, every single day. Um, it sounds like there was a lot of spontaneity in that work. Would, does that sound true or accurate? That the way that I was working in public, that I was just performing for whoever was around, right? Mm. Yeah, because at first, when I started, I thought when I first started, because I had never done and uh, perform every day of the year performance, I thought I had to kind of organize audiences. And well, honestly, when I first started, it was January. And, you know, you're not going to in Chicago in January and February, you're not going to do like too much stuff out on the street. I mean, I guess one could. But instead, what I decided was. I was first going to go to like every open mic in Chicago, <laughs> which at the time you could really spend a couple of months going to every open mic in Chicago. And um, so in that way, there was like a built-in audience. But then I think that I just gradually, as I kept doing it, I eased myself into more and more comfort with a public with public spaces and with outdoor spaces. And I also just got interested in it. You know, I got interested in, um, you know, uh, getting all my layers on and going out to the snowy lakefront and making a dance and kind of setting up my camera and recording it. And um, I felt more creatively stimulated by this uh, thing of going and making something in public and just um, encountering people and letting it develop as it, as it was going to develop and just see what happened. Mm. Yeah. What do you, um, I'm curious what you learned about people or about audiences working in that way. Well, one thing that I learned was that um, although, well, okay, it's unusual for most people, even in big cities, to 
encounter artists just making performance art on the street for no reason with no com- no like commission no sign that says this is what i'm doing i mean that is unusual however i have to say the general public usually responded in a more po- uh, positive way than i expected hmm. and and what i also discovered was that um i got more and more bold about interaction because all of my anxieties and fears about what's somebody going to say or how are they going to answer what is oh my god what are they going to think almost all the time my anxiety about that was way worse than it ended up being and in fact people time and time again uh, they surprised me with their and their willingness to answer, to participate, to go there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It cut out just a little bit. It sounded like you said their generosity and their willingness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, thinking about uprisings, which was a really, um, a real collaboration with, with the generosity and the willingness of volunteers and of general public, um, can you talk a little bit about your definition of an uprising and and what the nature of this project was? Yes, so uprising was a project that I did. I started in 2008 and I did it for five years until um, the end of 2012 and I did it once a month. So I decided the structure, the time structure was an uprising would happen once a month for five years. And um, I named all of these works uprising. I called them uprising number one, number seven, number 17, you know, number 33, all the different numbers as I went through the five years. And I defined an uprising as a public demonstration of revolutionary practices. And what that meant was really whatever, I mean, it didn't mean whatever I wanted it to mean. It meant that um, it meant that I was interested in how we could practice becoming more revolutionary people and what are the skills of a revolutionary that can be practiced. Now, you and I both have a, one thing we have in common is that we've both trained at Double Edge Theater. Mm-hmm. And so this is a familiar concept to us because we are um, actively involved in things that um, are training where you just, you don't, you don't start at the end, you start training and you train towards something and you allow it to develop through training, through physical training, through theater training, through vocal training, all these kinds of things. And in some ways um, there was an element to that that was in the uprisings because um, if we're not in a revolutionary time or we're not, people who are in an active revolutionary movement, how do we prepare ourselves? And how do we imagine the world that we want to live in? And the uprisings were very like imaginative and positive, honestly. I mean, because I was interested in how do we practice being the people that we want to be in the world? How do we practice having the social relationships that we um, desire? 
and not just fighting, not just being against something, but how are we actually creating scenarios in which we are at least rehearsing for the world that we want to live in? Right. It's, it's such a, I think it's so beautifully described in your book and for our listeners, um, this performance project uprisings is the subject of Nicole's book performing revolutionary, um, which is an incredible read and you can find on her website, nicolegarneau.com. Um, but there's a line where you describe uprisings as a way of practicing skills and creating a world and temporarily inhabiting it and creating these very temporary ephemeral sort of passing glimpses of, um, what other social relations could be like. And it's really astonishing to me and beautiful to me how many of the testimonies from different participants speak to the power of that um, and speak to how that has resonated with them for years afterwards. Um, I'm curious, there was a description in the book when you, um, I think you were citing, I can find it, the, like the temporary autonomous zone, Hakim Bey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to just share the part that you quote um, because it talks about rep revolutions and uprisings. And I want to talk a little bit about those two words. So the part that you pull, um, Bay describes pop-up creative expression. History says the revolution attains permanence or at least duration while the uprising is temporary. In this sense, an uprising is like a peak experience as opposed to the standard of ordinary consciousness and experience but such moments of intensity give shape and meaning to the entirety of a life. Um, and I'm curious to hear about what those words mean to you, revolution and uprising, and what either of them have to do with social change or movements for, for change. Well, that, um, I love that text by um, Hakim Bey, and I like the way that he describes an uprising. When I was looking, but actually I found that long after I had started the uprising project, um, when I was looking for a name for, I wanted a name for something that was going to reference revolution, but also be something about, I like the double entendre of uprising, like rising up. And it's um, this kind of aspirational, it has an aspirational element to it. And I'll tell you, we're having this conversation in July of 2020 mm -hmm. and all over the news media, um, reporters are getting on their microphones and talking about uprisings. Mm -hmm. The uprisings that are happening in American cities all over um, the United States, and they're using the word uprising. So you know I've been paying attention to it, and I think it's accurate. Um, and I think it's also accurate in the sense that by choosing to use the word uprising, they are also acknowledging the revolutionary potential of what is going on um, in social and racial justice movements in the United States right now, if not other places as well. And I also think that it's interesting because we're talking about this um, temporary autonomous zone uh, text by Hakim Bey, because of course we also have an autonomous zone that was physically created in Seattle yeah. uh, last month 
that people called an autonomous zone. People in the United States in Seattle in June 2020 created a temporary autonomous zone that was supposed to be police-free and self-governing. Um, I think that it was just taken down or just um, disassembled. Uh, I think, you know, like another temporary autonomous zone was like during probably we could say in many uh, cities in the United States and other places when people had encampments on during the Occupy um, movement mm -hmm. and just the power of having those spaces. Now, a zone, of course, can be like a physical place. It can also be a kind of temporal of a zone. Um, but I do think that these, yeah, there's that still, even in what's going on in the United States right now, that sense of these kind of like um, very energetic upticks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you've ever been to a big demonstration or in various ways, you know, I don't know, well, I can't say about you, but when sometimes when I've been at demonstrations and when I've been at the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that I have attended. It's incredibly exciting to me. It's incredibly exciting to see all those people together and um, people who want justice and people who love Black people. And to be in a space of Black love is also incredibly inspiring in those particular spaces. And you know what, I think sometimes people who don't go to demonstrations or who are not in a social justice movement miss is how much love is in those spaces? Yeah. How much, how much love? I mean, because it's easier to see people, you know, it's easier to show people throwing bricks or breaking stuff or whatever and create this, this image. But really what the, most of those demonstrations are is like a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life coming together and saying like, we don't want this. We don't want this violence. We don't want this racism anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful and and powerful and um in the places where it overlaps with healing work and cultural work and psychic work. Um I don't know, this moment especially to me is is so full of so just such an outpouring of artistic work often in the context of protests or you know online um organizing meetings uh so those things go hand in hand as you've pointed to yeah and in fact you're you're right there's an incredible creative outpouring happening music and visual art and performance and dance. And also, you know, one of the features of the temporary autonomous zone in Seattle was art. I mean, like literally every surface of everything was covered in some kind of artwork. I mean, can you imagine if we all got to live in a place that was um, <laughs> constantly <laughs> renewed like intentionally created visual spaces yeah so imaginative yeah yeah um so so talking about 500 solidarity 
and Yulia Tsvetkova. That's how you say her name, right? Yeah, Yulia Tsvetkova. It's hard. It's three, three consonants together that don't usually happen in English, but Tsvetkova. Mm-hmm. So she is a feminist artist um, who is coming up, her, her trial is coming up on July 12th, which is the end point of 500 Solidarity, or maybe not the end point. Um, but the, the current timeline for participating in a creative action that you're organizing uh, for an artist who has been harassed and targeted um, for creating what, what are called pornographic and um, I don't even know, what's the other uh, accusation against her? Um. It's the LGBT propaganda laws in Russia, which are, it's um, the law against um, propaganda of non-traditional social relations to children. Mm. And she's been targeted by a a known homophobe Mm -hmm. Um, and was placed under house arrest this spring and could only go, if I understand correctly, she could only go 500 meters from her home which is the starting point for the solidarity walk or the, the sort of conceptual parallel. Yeah. I mean, I can, um, yeah, all the stuff about Svetkova's case is right. Um, she's a young, she's 27 years old now. She um, is from a city called Kamsamolsk on Amur, which is in far Eastern Russia. Mm-hmm. And until, you know, about a year ago, she was like, you know, just young artist working, doing children's theater. Had she had a, was she had a local kind of like a community theater that she was working in. She was the director. They put up nine plays though, you know, while she was their director, um, all kids from the town and they were doing theater. They were doing visual art. It's, it's interesting because now that she's under arrest, I've been, I've gone much deeper into her whole body of work than I ever might have. Um, but they were working on sculpture, they watched films, they had discussions, you know, they did all this stuff. And, and at the same time, Yulia Tsvetkova um, is a feminist activist and an LGBT activist. So she was also making um, some visual art of her own that was um, drawings and she was doing some kind of like um, cultural projects that were for adults because those of us who work with children don't do everything that we do with children. (laughs) Right. Anyone who works with children knows that you have things that you do with children and then you have things that you do with grownups. And um, those of us who work with children know that you, you know, sometimes you're as an adult, you're allowed to have adult things that you share with adult people, which is um, I would say the kind of what Yuli was doing. Although um, the drawings and the artwork that she was doing was in no way what we would consider scandalous in the United mm-hmm. States context. Um, they were mostly about like educational drawings about women's bodies and sexual uh, and not even sexual health, like women's bodies, like the reality mm-hmm. of women's bodies. Um, and so, um, yeah, and the, but the targeting is important because there's this person in Russia named uh, Timur Bulatov who has established himself, uh, his brand is that he's a homophobic activist. He's a, um, and he describes his activism, and these are his words, he, he describes it as a moral jihad against um, people who defend LGBT rights. 
and he has supposed followers. And so when he and his followers dox people and, and um, publish their addresses, um, people, many LGBT people um, have been, have experienced harassment. And a lot of what Bulatov does is he, he tends to target school teachers and then he builds like a dossier of maybe social media posts that he sees that they've done or, you know, and maybe they're waving a rainbow flag sometime or whatever. And then he puts together all these papers and he sends them to that person's boss and he gets them fired. So he's gotten a lot of people fired from their jobs in this way. And there was also an um, LGBT activist in St. Petersburg who was brutally murdered about a year ago. And um, although th- her murder has not been officially tied to Bulatov and his followers, it happened shortly after they published her home address and no one has been found responsible for this murder. And many people think that Bulatov and his followers are responsible, but that is not going to be discovered because um, the investigation is over. So This is the context in which Bulatov like finds Yulia Tsvetkova some finds some post on social media. He lives five thousand miles away from her. He's like in Saint Petersburg, and she's close to Japan. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So he finds some kind of um, advertisement of the children's show that they were doing, which was called Pink and Blue, or like Pink People and Blue People. And he calls it. He starts to call it LGBT propaganda because the um, show is about gender stereotypes. Wow. And he starts to make a stink and he calls the police and he said, you know, he, and I don't really understand why this person is allowed to just call the police and call the government and make complaints against her that are followed up on so diligently. I don't get what his position is that he gets to do this, but this is what has happened. And so all, you know, and I think that what happened was that Bulatov's kind of activism and targeting of LGBT activists and people met up with a very conservative provincial government in the state that Yulia lives in. And mm-hmm. so they decided to go for her. They really decided to go for her and they charged her with this L- under these LGBT propaganda laws, which is, you know, what they call like a misdemeanor or an administrative charge. But mm-hmm. the more, the deeper thing is that they have charged her with distributing pornography on the internet, um, which uh, based on these two, like, one social media group that was called the vagina monologues that had like pretty pictures of art that looks like yonis and, um, or, uh, vulva for those of you who don't use the word yoni all the time. Um, (laughs) and, and then these, um, kind of drawings that she did of women's bodies. And that's the more, um, dangerous charge because it, it, she could face, she could get up to six years in prison for that. And, um, yeah, so she was placed under house arrest in November. Actually, and so the, the, my whole connection to it is that I met her in when I was in St. Petersburg. I was doing an artist residency in Russia last year. And mm-hmm. I went to this feminist festival in St. Petersburg. Yulia and I both showed our work. I talked to her. I saw her work. And then when she returned to Far Eastern Russia, she was arrested and placed under house arrest. And... Um, because I was around all these people that were friends of hers or who had known her, we were all talking about her case while we were in St. Petersburg and trying to figure out like what could be done or what's what the support mechanism was. And that is how I got in touch with her mother, Yulia's mother, Anna. 
and, um, you know, have stayed in touch with them over these months Mm -hmm. because, you know, and, and I've just stayed reading on the case, you know, I stayed while I was in Russia, there was, it was very difficult to figure out like what to do. And Mm -hmm. it, it, uh, because part of what's going on is that there's a very weak um, defense infrastructure in Russia. And also there's so much persecution of activists that there's not a lot of like strategic activism. You know what I'm saying? There's not like a right. whole group that's going to be like, okay, let's get in there. And this is what we need to do. We need to contact this person and get the, there's just, there's just like not that much strategy. And so it was um, a little bit random. And what, um, but what Anna and Yulia said from jump was that the best thing for her is the more people know about this case, the better it's going to be for her. And the reason for that is because um, even if she goes to prison, it'll be harder to torture or murder her. Um, if she, you know, publicity is the only thing that'll keep her out of prison potentially. So I started working on publicity. I just tried to like post about it and talk to people about it. And I built a website about the her case so that people could have a place to go to like find out information and stuff like that. And that's the freetsfit.net um website. But in the meantime, I also got invited to teach some workshops in Russia on art activism, right? And so like, it wasn't in, it was in these two other cities that are pretty far away from Moscow and St. Petersburg. These people had some funding and they were like, we're going to bring all these feminist artists down and we're going to do these weekend workshops with local activists and we're going to do art activism. And so come on down and do it. And um, I do speak enough Russian that I could lead a workshop, although that was my first time teaching a workshop in Russian and it was not easy, um, but <laughs> it was okay. Everyone was very, very forgiving. And as part, just only as part of the workshop, like it's so dangerous to be an activist. And I was not also trying to endanger anyone else in this process. Like that's not a cute look for an American is getting Russians arrested for some stupid thing that you want to do in a workshop. Um, And so I thought, well, like, okay, maybe we could just try something that's about like solidarity as a strategy of arts activism. So how, you know, the whole weekend was about solidarity. How do we embrace solidarity? How do we show solidarity? How do we perform solidarity? How do we like, what does it mean to be solidarity with other people? And just as one exercise I, I did, I was like, okay, well, one suggestion I have is that we could just take a walk because, you know, we all know that Yulia Tvitkova has been arrested. Many of the people, everyone in my workshops knew about this case that was on everybody's mind. And I was like, yeah, you know, Yulia and Anna keep talking about how Yulia can only go 500 meters from her house for one hour each day. So maybe we could just see what that's like and we could go outside and we could take a 500 meter walk. So let's, and then see how that feels. A lot of times just like try it and see how it feels. And we didn't like hold signs or call a, did it, it wasn't a march or anything. It was like literally let's put on our winter coats, go outside, walk 500 meters, return, and that's it. But we also, at the end of the walk, we made a little video and we like sent love to Yulia and her mother. And then that led me send a video to, you know, upload it to YouTube and send it to Yulia and her mother and be like, hey, these people, all these activists in Samara and Talatya um, are rooting for you. And there's people, you know, you're not alone. Mm. And they really liked it. 
And so I was like, well, all right, this is great. I don't need to, I mean, I want to only do things that they like and that feel good to them, especially if you're trying to be show solidarity. Right. So when I went um, to, when I, when I left Russia and I was going to stop, I went to Berlin and Copenhagen and London um, to do some other performance things uh, while I was over there. I thought, well, if I'm trying to spread the word about Yulia's case and I have some opportunities to perform anyway, why don't I just um, take a call, say my look, say my performance is a 500 meter solidarity walk. And um, that gives me the chance to talk to a captive audience about Yulia's case. And it gives us a chance to do the kind of thing that I love to do, which is like just participatory, everybody get on and do something together. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did a we did a solidarity walk in Berlin that was part of like an evening at a club where everyone just left the club and we all walked for 500 meters and sent a video to Yulia and her mother and turned around. Um, and then I did another one in London, but yeah. And so like for me, it was a way to for me to do the kind of work that I do, but also talk about this thing that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And also, I really like the kind of embodiment, the feeling, the walking, the distance, the like, you know, being, having your body be involved in it. It's sort of the sensual experience that we're all sharing. Um, but I did those walks, like we all held hands when I did those walks. And you can't do that in <laughs> a COVID-19 reality. So I thought, well, maybe you know, in addition to all this, like other publicity stuff that I'm working on for Yulia's case, like maybe there's a way to just do some more solidarity walks. Like let's, and I really enjoy doing things that are like wildly ambitious, (laughs) potentially ridiculously. So I don't know if I can get 500 people, but might as you can't, can't get 500 people to do it if you don't try Lillian. Okay. And there's actually no reason why we might not get 500 people to do uh, solidarity walks. And so that's what I'm working on right now um, is uh, let's do 500 solidarity walks. Yeah. And for people who want to participate, the way to learn more is at your, at the website you built. Yeah. You can go to the free there. You can go to free which is F R E E T S vet.net but i also put a page up on my website about it that links the two so you could go to nicolegarno.com and there's also a page there that talks about 500 solidarity so either one it's the same information mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well um uh i'm i'd love to hear a little more as we start to close i can't believe we're already running out of time but um about participation and embodiment, which I know is a huge theme in all of your work, but, but as you just said, is part of how you connect to solidarity work or how you have uh, learned the skills, developed the skills to pull other people into um, creative action. Um, how do you think about participation um, from people who may or may not identify as artists or who may or may not identify as creatives. Um, and what have you, what are some things, maybe just even just one or two things you've observed over the years about participation? Sort of moving from what you described in Heat 05, performing, doing a performance art in a public space and people watching or giving a, a, public, a positive response 
um, move from that into uprisings and um, 500 solidarity, some things you've observed or that, that interest you or that you're still curious about? Well, one thing is that one thing that is interesting to me is to do participatory art projects that um, allow people to participate without doing art or without being artists or having to identify as artists. And because I think that, and and the easiest, I've honestly, I have found that that is an easier way to get people to participate is to kind of like pare the task down mm. so that it doesn't even really seem like art. Um, and also the other thing is I'm very, I really, really love the accumulation of a lot of very simple things into one bigger thing that becomes totally beautiful, but it's only totally beautiful when all the things have accumulated so for example so 500 solidarity is a perfect example of that like the technology could not be simpler <laughs> the request <laughs> is leave your home go 500 meters which is about one third of a mile um, take a picture of yourself with a sign that says free Yulia Svitkova and wherever you're calling from that's it like there's I mean so when when you describe that this is a performance project, it sounds almost ridiculous to say like, yeah, it's a performance project where people take a 500 meter walk and take a selfie. But what makes it beautiful is the idea of all these different, all these people in all these different places all doing it. And then we accumulate a kind of um, um, mass experience because we've all taken, we've all taken like, a minute of our lives to consider this other person and how our actions might affect change in some way. Mm -hmm. And that to me, so it's so, and it's the, how I do this all the time. Like I feel like the, where I the development of the work the participatory work keeps getting like more and more pared down. Mm. You know, my goal is always like the simplest possible explanation, the simplest possible, like no equipment, the simplest possible technology, the simplest possible gesture that almost doesn't even seem like a performance. Mm. Those are the things that are very, um, and how do you then do the simplest, gentlest thing that ends up feeling totally meaningful? Like, when we took this walk in Berlin, there were people at the end of it, like in tears, like telling me, I never, I hate performance. I hate participatory things. I never volunteer to do anything, but that was like so meaningful and so beautiful. And who, all we did was take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just think that sometimes with this, extremely simple things there can still be a lot of room for magic in fact maybe there's more room for magic the simpler it is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow um 
Well, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your work and um, some of what you've gleaned from it. And thank you for your book as well. Your book, your website, your current efforts. Thank um, you, Lillian. Yeah. It, it, as someone who never has, I've never seen an uprising, but I feel that I have been there because the book is such a living document. Um, and such a testimony to the principles you've found, developed, <laughs> honed over the years. I really appreciate that. And it's been really, really nice to talk with you. You as well. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll see you next time.